Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Awesome. Let's give Him another hand. Just video just captured a, a small part of the great work they do as they go out amongst the students. And he said they're going to have fun. They're not going to have fun. No one goes to rage to have fun. You go to get drunk. Um, and a bunch of other things, and it's just so great that you get to be, and we get to send people to be part of that. I want to encourage you, if you're thinking about going on a missions team, come and join us. We're going to have some incredible time in the different teams that are going over the next few weeks. Um, well, I'm going to Burundi in a couple of weeks' time, and then we're sending some teams to, yes, that's going to be fun. Who was that? You're coming along. Um, and then some people in, in June and July going all over the place, and then towards the end of the year, we'll be sending a number of teams Again, and we'd love to have you guys join us. We've been spending a large part of this year looking at some of the passages in Philippians. You may remember we looked at Philippians chapter 3, that beautiful bit where the Apostle Paul writes, I want to know Christ. I want to know Him. And we spent quite a few weeks just spending a bit of time thinking about that, praying into it. What does it mean to say we want to know Jesus? How does somebody at the end of his life, as Paul was at that stage, who's spent his vast majority of his life preaching the gospel, growing the church, planting churches, writing what we have today as the New Testament. How does he at the end of his life say, I want to know Jesus? We spent a bit of time about that. Last week, we looked a little bit at some passages in Philippians chapter 1, and we saw there how Paul writes that we are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, that means that we must live in certain ways here on this earth. And we see that at the end of Philippians chapter 1 and the beginning of Philippians chapter 2. And one of the things we said is it's so important that we live in community, that we live together, that we cannot live in isolation as followers of Christ. And for today, I, I want us just to read on a, a couple of verses later from verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. And we could probably just stop here and spend the rest of the evening repenting, most of us. Maybe this is a message we should speak more. Maybe I should teach my kids more. Yes, you will go to school today and you don't have to complain or dispute about it. You're going to go to bed now and you're not going to displain, complain or dispute it. Um, yes, I will do what I need to do without complaining and disputing. I wonder how many of us wake up tomorrow morning and we say, I'm going to do whatever I can today without complaining and disputing. And how many of us kind of Try and find the gap to complain and, and dispute and to fight with people in life. But anyway, Paul carries on. He says that you may be blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of light so that I may rejoice the day that Christ. And the rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. I think most of us who've been around this world a little bit know that we live in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. We don't have to go too far to find crookedness and perversion. I think what's also important to say is that if there is an absence to some degree of crookedness or perversion in our life, it's not because we're better than anyone else. If there's an absence of crookedness or perversion in our life, it's only because in some glorious way the Holy Spirit has turned us from darkness towards light. 
It's only because of the cross of Christ that He has washed us and He has cleansed us. It's not that we're better, it's just simply we've received more. And so when we look at a world which perverse and crooked, our, our response should not be one of judgment. Our response should be one of grace and of invitation. Our response should not be one of you are useless and bad and going to hell. Our response should be, do you know that there is life in Christ? There is more than you can begin to imagine. And yet we are meant to be and meant to shine as lights in this world. An old saying, many of us know it well probably, that a light is at its most effective in darkness. You know, if we today were to take out our cell phone lights here, it really wouldn't make too much of a difference if you were to turn our cell phone light on. But if we were to turn off the lights and then suddenly you take your cell phone out and you turn on the light, then suddenly that small light makes a big difference. It's a beautiful song we used to sing. Some of you may remember it. And popular song and the, the refrain, the, the bridge went something along these lines. I'm not going to try and sing it because I have an apostolic voice. When I sing, people go, you know, and to all the world. We're not going to quite go in that direction tonight, but the words go something along the lines of shine your light and let the whole world see. We're living for the glory of a risen King. And as much as we sing that song and beautiful songs like that, we should sing that song, but also realize that as much as we're praying, Jesus, shine your light and let the whole world see. I think the Holy Spirit is looking back and saying, well, will you be the light that I shine? That our prayer for the light of God to shine in the midst of a dark and a perverse generation is not a prayer for God to do some supernatural work and let a light shine from heaven. It's a prayer to let a light that he puts inside you and me shine in the midst of darkness. As much as we live in the, the midst of a, a crooked and perverse generation, as much as we get to be a light to brokenness and a light to darkness all around us, there's something else about us as, as Christians that it's important that we remind ourselves of this evening. And when I was a little bit younger, I'm not old at all, but when I was just a little bit younger, way before the days of kind of streaming music and Apple music and Google music and all of that stuff, you had these, these circular round things that kind of shined. If you put the light on them, like reflective. We called them compact discs or CDs for short. They were pretty cool. You should try and find one in the museum somewhere. And we were only limited to the music that we could get a hold of that somebody had a CD. And before them, there were these really cool things called cassette tapes. Yeah, you guys know. It's not something that you stick. It's not a sticky tape at all, kind of. But we... Either a friend had to have a cassette tape or be able to get hold of the CD because that was kind of the only music that you could listen to. And the music, the market for Christian music in South Africa has never been the biggest, biggest market on the planet. And there was this band that we could get a hold of that some of us had CDs of and we could listen to. And the music was good, but the name was even better. They were called the Peculiar People. Taken from First Peter in the old King James where the Bible says in different translations, it says that we are God's own special people, His own race, a chosen generation, a peculiar, a different people. And Paul says very much the same thing here in 2 Corinthians. The verse just before this, he says, sometimes I behave as a foolish, as a fool, and no, when I'm being a fool, I'm being that for God, but when I'm being all dignified, I'm decent, I'm being that for people. 
And either way, whichever one I am, Christ's love controls us. And since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. I love that song we sang this evening, I lay me down. My life, I'm laying it down. Your will, your way. We said that last week as well, that if we're following Jesus authentically, we do not get to decide what that looks like. We don't get to decide what it means to be a Christian. We don't get to decide what a Christian life looks like. We get to apply to our life what it means to be a Christian. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. Back to the theme of knowing Christ. And in verse 17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ, has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. That is such an incredible word of grace that God speaks over our lives, and it refers to our old life in terms of our sinfulness. It refers to our old life in terms of our brokenness. It refers to all of that. But for this evening, as we're going to look at some other passages tonight, it also applies to the fact that we are not the same as we used to be. A new life has begun. A new life that is peculiar, that is different, that is perhaps a little bit weird. As Christians, maybe you've kind of wrestled with this a little bit, but we're different to the world. We should be different to the world. We're not deliberately different. It's like, you know, all of us right now, you, as you sit here, you are a unique, beautifully crafted creature. You are unique just like everybody else, but you are unique. Sort of as we work with arts and artistic people, often the the lie comes up that kind of somehow it's been put in them that as an artist, I have to be unique. And then we find people who are Christians and artists wrestling with this kind of, I have to be unique, but at the same time, there's this wrestling inside of me of something that Christ has made me to be. And maybe if you're struggling with that, the word of grace this evening for you is you don't have to be unique. You are already unique. You don't have to be out there. You don't have to push the boundaries, push the limits, be deliberately different. Just be yourself. That's different enough. Just be yourself. Just allow the Holy Spirit to be authentically who He has created and shaped and formed you to be. And if you are truly that, that will be different. There is no one like you on this earth. But in you trying to be different, all that you're doing more and more is you're being less and less of yourself. And you're becoming more and more lost and confused about your purpose, about where God is leading you, what He has created you for. And there's a parallel to that in church. Is church, we're not different because we're trying to be deliberately different. A word we often use about church is that church is countercultural, different to culture. That doesn't mean we go around and see what is culture doing and then we decide we're going to be the opposite. It's simply that When we are who God has called us to be, we find that that is different to what culture is. We're naturally different. We're not deliberately different. We don't try and find things to be different about, but when we're following Christ, it's different. We don't look at the world the way the world looks at the world. We don't think the way the world thinks. We don't value the things that the world values. 
We're different. We're unique. We're a peculiar people. And you and I should be a peculiar people. And that differentness, that different way of thinking, that different way of dreaming, that different way of hoping is something that separates us from the world around us. And that's okay. Speaks a little bit to the identity that we have in Christ. One of the biggest struggles that every single Christian will go through is what I call the ownership issue. Whose am I? Whose am I? This passage we just read said that if I'm following Christ and I realize He's died for me, that for me to authentically follow Him, I need to come to a place in my life where I can authentically sing that song. Not my will, but your will, Jesus. I lay me down. I lay me down. I'm not my own. I don't get to make decisions for my own life. I can't decide what my life looks like, Jesus. I've got to seek you and follow you, and that will determine what my life looks like. Speaks a little bit to the core of my identity. That's one of the reasons why baptism is such a fundamental part of the Christian faith. Baptism speaks about that place where, as an adult, as somebody who's come to mental capacity to make decisions for my own life, I decide I'm following Jesus. And then baptism is the outflow of that. It's the, the physical step on the outside to say, Jesus, I know you died. And symbolically, I'm going to die as well. And that's what happens when we go under the water. It's like we're buried with Christ. And that's the picture of, of baptism. And then, and then we come up to newness of life. And we, what the Bible says, we, we put on Christ. We identify with Christ. It's no longer I living now, Jesus. I'm making a conscious decision. And I'm going through this action, this ritual of sorts to kind of proclaim it that it's not about me. One of the things that sort of really breaks my heart about church and Christianity as such is we have way too many unbaptized Christians walking around. Way too many people who are following, not saying, who want to know Jesus, who call on the name of Jesus, but still decide to determine their own life. We have not come to the point of what baptism says, I'm dying to myself. And allowing God to do that incredible miracle work in our identity. And suddenly I... And we're going to speak about this a lot tonight, about identity. Suddenly, I'm not so much who I used to be anymore, but I'm a new creation. Part of a new nation, a new race, a new generation, a new special people that is a little bit weird. That is different. That does things differently. That thinks differently. And all of that is just by way of introduction, by way of background, because what is it, about three and a half weeks from today, Many of us are going to be walking into a hall very similar to this, to this, perhaps some of us this hall. And we're going to walk after standing in a bit of a queue probably. We're eventually going to get to the front and we're going to get given two pieces of paper. And we're going to come stand sort of in a little box where no one's meant to be able to see and one pen. And we get to mark two little crosses on two little pieces of paper. This evening I'm wanting us to think a little bit about how do I, as a Christian, approach that process? How do I come to this place where I'll make a decision around who do I vote for? Who do I make my cross? So what I'd like us to do now is just turn in groups of three or four, and just very quickly, for about one minute, just tell the people in your group who you're going to be voting for. Okay. Just kidding. We're not going to do that tonight. This evening, my plan is not for us to walk out of here and to say, this is the party that I think you should be voting for. What I want to do is I'll, I want to hopefully stimulate a little bit of discussion. Hopefully 
stir some things in your heart that you can go away with and speak to other people. And I'd encourage you, have a conversation with the people around you, the people you trust. You say, guys, this is the party that I'm thinking about voting for. What do you think about that? Have a discussion, a mature discussion about it. It's so sad for me that in our society, we get told as kids, you never talk about politics or religion. What does that mean? It means we grow up as adults, unable to communicate healthily about politics or religion. The only way we can do it is by fighting or by running away. We can't have honest, good conversations about probably two of the most important factors in our lives. So this evening, I'm wanting us to perhaps stir some things in our heart, hopefully stimulate some conversations between us, and hopefully just as much stimulate some conversation between you and God. Hopefully give you some things to take home, to go and think about, to pray about over these next three weeks. So before we get to sort of the, the theology part of it, let's get to the political science part of it. Elections 101. Do we have any political scientists, people studying political science in our midst here tonight? See, we need to pray for politicians in South Africa. They obviously are very far from God. Okay, just kidding. We live in what's known as a constitutional democracy. I think most of us probably know that. We've heard those words. What does it mean? It means we have a constitution. The Afrikaans word is a, translates kind of the, really well. We have a grondwet. We have a ground law upon which all of the law in South Africa is built. And that's what we call a constitution. And that governs the way in which sort of our nation is led and governed. And then we have, it's a democracy. So we have a constitution, in a sense, married to a democracy. And democracy comes from the Greek demos, which means people, and kratos, which means rule. As opposed to something like autocracy, which is an individual ruling. We're a democratic nation. So we've got this constitution that governs our democratic process. And the whole idea, the concept behind democracy is simply that, as Lincoln Abraham Lincoln, way back, kind of, he coined this phrase, he said it so beautifully, it's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So the idea behind democracy is that we would be self-governing, not in the sense kind of of autocratic rule, where auto means self, but in the sense that collectively we would together all govern ourselves. That's the idea behind democracy. Collectively, we are self-governing we kind of come together and, and we decide as the people together what is right for us. Whereas in an autocracy or in a monarchy or something, there is an appointed individual and they make the decisions on behalf of everyone. And democracy is obviously not quite exactly that. Practically, we can't all govern together at the same time. There are about 14 million people in South Africa, I'm told, who are allowed voting. How many of us are voting for the first time at this election? Do we have any first-time voters? Great stuff. It's cool, eh? Becoming a real grown-up person, getting to make real decisions. We can't all govern at the same time. And this is the heart behind the democratic system as we have it, as we understand it, the theory behind it. But I can appoint somebody to govern on my behalf. And that's what an election is for. We come together and I decide, well, these are the people or the person, depending on kind of the, the democratic structure, that I am appointing, that I am electing. And if enough of us elect those people, those are the people who will be governing on my behalf. 
I appoint them to do it in my stead. I can't, we can't all, I mean, we're 14 million people in South Africa, I'm told, who can vote. Can you imagine if 14 million had to make, have an input on every decision that gets made on a government level? Some of us have been in committees with 10 people and nothing ever gets decided. Imagine 14 million, it's just totally impractical. So what do we do is we identify and we elect people to do it on our behalf. Okay, that's a really important principle. We're going to get back to that. Something else that's important just to mention is democracy is not necessarily a biblical governance system. It's not necessarily unbiblical in that it contradicts Scripture, but you won't find a vote taking place in Scripture. We don't see people coming together. Well, who's going to be king of Israel next? Well, let's send out the independent electoral committee. We're going to have a big vote, and then kind of whoever the people all together decide, and we vote on, that's going to be our next king. It doesn't happen like that. Who's going to be the next leader of the church in the various cities? It's not a sort of a democratic process. Hey, we all come together and we vote. There are elders, there are leaders, there's sort of various government levels. But what we see throughout Scripture is what is called in the academic world theocracy. In other words, God appoints individuals who act on His behalf to lead the people. And whether it's the kings or the prophets, etc. But the point is we have a democracy. It's what we've got. It's probably not a perfect system. But I would suggest it's the best of a bunch of broken systems we get to choose from. Maybe if you know of a better system, please do write a letter to Parliament for them to consider. But if you look at the world around us, then democracy is probably the safest, the best kind of governance system that there is with all its flaws that we in South Africa and every other democracy is very aware of. Okay, you all still with me? Okay. Political Science 101, you guys are all going to pass this test. Okay. Within South Africa, we have what's known as a proportional representation system. What is that not? Well, it's not what the Americans have. And the reason I say that is because many of us have watched movies, we are influenced by the media a little bit, and it's kind of we, we see what happens in their voting system, and we think ours is the same, ours is not the same. Ours is very different. They have what's known as sort of a first-past-the-post or a winner-takes-all type of election. So what happens there is you vote, and if 50% of the people, of the people who are allowed to vote, plus one, vote for a specific candidate, that candidate wins. Does that make sense? And if you had 50%, but you just one vote short, sorry, it's first-past-the-post, the winner-takes-all type of environment. South Africa is not that. We have the proportional representation system. I'll expand on that in just a little moment. The American system votes for individuals. In the last election, you had sort of Humpty D and the other one that you had to choose for, and kind of it's not the best option ever placed between mankind. But you voted for that person. You voted for Hillary Clinton or you voted for Donald Trump. South Africa, we don't vote for individuals. That's super important. We're going to get to a little bit. That's just important to note. We'll speak about that a little bit more as we carry on. What proportional representation means, and let me just, some people don't like it, some people do like it, but the proportional representation as opposed to the first past the post method was chosen specifically in South Africa by the writers of our democracy because of an understanding where we came from. As an understanding that we are a very diverse nation of a whole bunch of different people, the idea is 
we want to have as thorough representation as we possibly can at our levels of government. And so they elected, they chose the proportional representation system, which means that if there are 100 votes, and 60% of the vote goes to one party, then 60% of the positions in the electorate go to that party. And 20% go, the other party, party B, gets 20% of the vote. That means party B gets 20% of the representation. Maybe party F or G or H gets 1% of the vote. They get 1% of the representation. The point is that everybody ideally is able to have a voice, a voice speaking on their behalf. At the last election, the threshold for that voice was roughly 45,000. So if about 45,000 people, for every 45,000 votes that a party got, they got one member elected to the national legislature. 45,000, not so much. It's a lot of people, but it's not so much within the nation that's in South Africa. 45,000, as a matter of fact, because of the way, kind of the way it's calculated is a little bit more complicated, but kind of the party that got the least amount of votes but still got a person into parliament had, what was the exact number, 30,676 votes. So just over 30,000 votes was enough for them to have somebody representing them in parliament. So I used this ludicrous example this morning, but I'm going to use it again. So say, for example, that, hey, I am totally committed. I think the most important thing in South Africa is we should plant a mango tree in every garden. If 30,000 people agree with me that that's the most important thing in South Africa right now, or should be right up there with one of the most important things, then I start a mango party. And if I get 30,000 votes voting for the mango party, that means that there is a mango person in, there's a mango in parliament, and every discussion, every time there's a debate, every time something gets put on the floor, there's somebody that's putting their hand up that says, how is this going to help us plant mangoes? There's always that voice saying, but what about the mangoes? Yes, I know you want to build new roads, but how are we going to plant mangoes? And it's a ludicrous example, but it's important for us to understand that that's the idea, that's the whole heart behind our electoral system. We are built and kind of, I very much enjoy this about our electoral system. The idea is let's get everyone a voice. doesn't matter how ludicrous they are. doesn't matter how crazy they are about their mangoes. If there are enough people who committed to being a mango and planting mangoes, then we're going to have a mango in parliament. Does that make sense? Everyone sort of understand this system. One last thing I said, but I want to come back to it very importantly. Unlike the Americans who vote for a person, you vote for Donald Trump or you vote for Hillary Clinton. You vote for the governing person, the governor, the equivalent of our premier, governor of a state. You vote for the governor. You vote for that person. And they may be aligned to a party, but you vote for that person. Within your kind of your specific district or area, your suburb, your neighborhood that you vote for that, you vote for a person. South Africa, we don't vote for a person. We vote for a party. What does that mean? That means if you are Tabu Mbeki and you are the president, there doesn't need to be a national election if the party that appointed you as president decides they don't want you as president anymore. They just remove you. And suddenly we've got a new president. Similarly, Jacob Zuma is president, was president. Jacob Zuma is no more. Oh, yes, I must, is it me? 
at the computer. Is that something? Okay. Jacob Zuma is president no more, but we didn't have an election to remove Jacob Zuma as president. It was a party, an internal party decision. That is incredibly important as we're going to look at some passages going forward. We don't vote for an individual. An individual is limited within their party. They've got to toe the party line. The party might, on some aspects, say what they call it's a conscious vote. You can make your own decision. But for the most part, the decisions that, the, that you make as a representative of the party, you've got to do what the party wants you to do. Otherwise, they put someone else there. doesn't matter how nice I am. doesn't matter how amazed. My ideas are subject to the party. That doesn't mean, okay, I'm running ahead of myself, but let me put this in there. There can be some amazing people in specific parties. And we can pray for them and we can support them to bring about reform within those parties. But when it comes to the electoral box, when it comes to them making decisions in the various levels of government, they don't get to make their decisions. They make the decisions as their party has determined the decision needs to be made. They have an influence in that decision, but at the end of the day, they have to toe the party line. If not, then they just get removed and replaced with somebody who's going to toe the party line. So why are we talking about this in church this evening? Because there are a whole bunch of voices probably telling us who we should be voting for. There are definitely a whole bunch of posters trying to tell us who we should be voting for. I hope and pray that hopefully a voice in the who am I voting for is the voice of the Holy Spirit, is the voice of Scripture. What I would love to see is that for those of us who are able to vote and will be voting in the coming election, when we walk into a hall like this, we take the pen, we take our two ballot papers, you're going to be voting for a national government and for a provincial government at this coming election. We voted for municipal government two or three years ago, and in two or three years we'll vote for municipal government again. That's sort of out of sync with the national and the provincial government. But now we're voting for provincial government, two ballot papers, two votes. And I want to make that cross And my prayer is, my hope is, that by the time you get to that point, you're going to do it with so much confidence, so much conviction. You're going to take that pen and you're going to make a big fat cross there and you're going to know, Jesus, right now, I am representing you in the most powerful way possible within this context. I've prayed about this. I've wrestled about this. I know, Jesus, exactly who you want me to vote for. And I make that cross with confidence, with boldness. Knowing that Jesus, as an ambassador of you, as a citizen of heaven, I'm making a vote that is glorifying your name, that is bringing your kingdom to pass. And that's my prayer, that's my heart without us, with, around us sharing this this evening. How do I know who to vote for? Turn to page 358 in your Bible. Find the second paragraph. Follow the first letter of the first three words, and that acronym is the acronym of the party you should be voting for. Scripture doesn't work like that. Praise the Lord, we've been delivered about, from that about 10 or 15 years ago. There was this thing coming into church that there's this hidden code in the Bible. And kind of, if you just figure out the code, you can know what God's actually trying to tell us. And No, God's already told us what He wants to tell us. Just read it. The hard part about reading Scripture is not the reading bit, for most of us, hopefully. It's the applying it. It's the wrestling with it. So when it comes to our voting, and we're going to look at this in a moment, what is it? We need to take Scripture. We need to wrestle with Scripture. We need to pray through Scripture. We need to trust God for wisdom. And can I put this out there? We need to have conversations with other like-minded believers 
to help us come to a place where we can be confident with the conviction that this is where God wants me to go with my vote. So four things that I believe as Christians we should engage with in the democratic process. The first one, we should pray. Much of Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says, this is the context of the people of Israel who've literally been carried away captive into a foreign country. They're serving under a foreign king. They're not in the country they want to be in. Maybe I should just throw this out here that very, very rarely in the history of mankind or Christianity at least since Christ came has any has there ever been an authentic Christian government? You and I today are living under a secular, non-Christian government. And God might redeem, and it's very possible God can save a nation in a day. But if history is anything to go by, if the current state of the world is anything to go by, we will most likely live under a secular government for the rest of our lives. Everyone comfortable with saying that? I don't know today of a Christian government on this planet, of a government that is clearly, overtly following Christ, who chooses to put Christ at the center of all of their government decisions. I don't know of one. There may be one. I don't know of that country. So in a sense, this passage is always going to apply to us. We're always going to be a little bit like the people carried away in captivity, where we've got a people ruling us who we don't necessarily agree with. So what do we do in that context? Well, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. We should be praying for our country. We should be praying for our city. We should be praying as 1 Timothy 2 teaches us for our leaders. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. That's a good start. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So much in that that we can unpack, but for this evening, you and I should be praying for kings. When is the last time you prayed for Sir Ramaphosa? When is the last time you prayed for our provincial government? When is the last time you prayed for our municipal government? We're so quick to put up our hands and complain about stuff. And as believers, I wonder what would happen if we were to, before anything else, uphold our country and our leaders in prayer. The message paraphrasing. Maybe just put a word around the message just to put this on here because I want to just make this point. The message is a fantastic book to read. I'd encourage you to read it. But read it like you would read a, doc, a commentary. What do I mean by that? It's not Scripture. It's an interpretation of Scripture. It's what somebody sees and interprets in their reading of Scripture. It's not the original text. It's very close to, but it's not the same. So I just want to encourage us that kind of when we're studying Scripture, let's base it on Scripture, not on a nice paraphrase of Scripture. In other words, an interpretation of Scripture. Some, what somebody thinks Scripture says, and we make that our doctrine. It's similarly, there's a, a, what they call a translation doing the rounds, which is very much not a translation. It's more of a paraphrase. It's called the Passion Translation, which has got nothing to do with the Passion Church or the Passion Movement. It's something totally different, but it's a paraphrase. If you want to read it, read it, but keep in the back of your mind, this is more of a commentary on Scripture than Scripture itself. Nevertheless, I, I love how the message as a commentary, as a 
kind of expansion of, of Scripture phrases this bit. It says, the first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. Pray especially for rulers and their governments to rule well so we can be quietly about our business of living simply in humble contemplation. This is the way our Savior God wants us to live. The first thing that you and I should be doing as followers of Christ in the midst of a dark and perverse generation, a wicked and perverse generation, as shining lights as we should be praying. So I think it's on the 3rd of May, somewhere around there, the Friday before the election, there's going to be a prayer meeting up at the union buildings. Go. Let's be there to pray for our nation. Let's pray collectively. Let's make it part of our daily, our regular prayer rhythm as we're praying in the Spirit regularly. I want to encourage you to do that. Take time just to pray in the Spirit, but take time to pray for the country as well. Pray for the upcoming elections. Let's be a people who uphold our nation in prayer. Jesus commanded us to pray. Didn't, he pray. Didn't Jesus say we must pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on this earth as in heaven. Let's pray that. Let's pray for our government. Let's pray for our governing structures. The second thing that I want us to do, what I believe we should do as Christians as within the democratic process, is we should engage constructively. What do we love doing as Christians, as the church? And we've got a bit of a bad name for this in the world. We wait for something to happen that we really don't like, and then we send around a petition and we tell everyone, you must now sign the petition. Because we get all upset about this decision that's being made. Just between you and me, I, I'm going to step on some toes maybe. It's okay, though. stepping on toes is coming. This is sort of a light stepping on toes. I, I haven't seen too many petitions that actually change anything. Maybe that's just me. Yeah, you should tell them they should be in church. Huh? I don't see too many petitions that actually make a difference. Except to say, here we are again, the church really upset about something. And maybe step on the mortos. Because we were too lazy to be involved earlier. See, when it comes to decision making, we should be there where the law is being written. We shouldn't at the end complain about the law that was written. If we're not there and willing to get our hands dirty in the process, we shouldn't be complaining about the product. I've got some great friends. I'm trying to get them up here to come and share with us one Sunday. If you're on Facebook, you can find them. Cause for justice. People who are about deliberate about engaging right at the start, at the, the fabric of our conferences. Being in the court when they need to be in court. Being in parliament when they need to be in parliament. Being a voice for in a sense, for God, being ambassadors for God about the things which they believe are in God's heart. I think as believers, we should do that a lot more. One of the reasons I think we don't is because we're afraid of being in the secular space. Well, I want to read for us one of the people that we look up to very much if we read scriptures, a young man named Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, he came to the king and, and the king sort of in first person writes, he said, at last Daniel came in before me. I told him the dream. He was named, watch this, Belteshazzar after my God. How's that for being uncomfortable as a follower of Christ? This Daniel, for those who don't know the story, refused to bow to any other God than the God we serve. And for that, he was thrown in jail and kind of thrown in a, a lion's den so that the lion would eat him. A lion, he'd been hungry for a, whole, for a while, and kind of the lion wouldn't eat him. Eventually, they brought him out. 
because God was with him there. This guy was willing to give his life to not serve any other God, and yet he seems reasonably comfortably being called a God. You see that? The king gives him the name of his God. He was named Belteshazzar, after my God. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I read that. He's different. Some of your translations would say the spirit of the holy God. I actually went and looked at the original text. It's plural. In other words, this king who does not know God sees there is something different about this person. And we're going to see what that looks like a little bit in a moment. And he says the spirit of the gods, the best that he can relate to it, is in this guy. This guy is different. But watch what Daniel does here. Look, I said to him, Belteshazzar, you know, he calls him his God's name, chief of the magicians. I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. That's a weird place for a Christian to be in, isn't it? Head magician. Watch this a little bit later in, in verse 5. We see Daniel's signature at the bottom of his email. There is a man in your kingdom. So this is now the next king has now ascended to the throne. And this message get brought, gets brought to him. There's a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. I look at that and see someone anointed by God to do what he must do. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, watch this, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. So if Daniel sends you an email, at the bottom of the email it says, Daniel, chief of the magicians, astrologers, enchanters, and fortune tellers of Babylon. Maybe at the end, follower of Jesus, just to confuse you a little bit. See, there's something that we need to be aware of. That there only we, It's very hard to be a shining light when you're removed from the darkness. It's very hard to be a shining light when all the decision makers are over there, oh, and they're too dirty, it's too ungodly, I can't get involved in that cesspit, in the mess, I'm holy and I'm going to remain here. Daniel was anointed, empowered by God. I mean, this king looks at him and says, there's something different about you. You've got the spirit of God. We understand it's the spirit of not the holy gods, of the living God living with inside of him. You're anointed, Daniel, to do what you've been called to do. So as we go through scriptures, we can look at Joseph, another man who was in a secular government, a government who had no desire to follow God, and yet God used him powerfully to bring about salvation for an entire region. Most of mankind, or a very large part of mankind at that time, would have died of starvation had it not been for Joseph. God used Joseph, his wisdom, his insight, his knowledge of God, his knowledge of the ways of God, to bring about salvation within that context, redemption for the entire, as we know it today, Middle Eastern Egyptian region, that whole big area, in a sense, was saved because of Joseph. Esther, who's a, a queen to an ungodly king, and yet God uses her to deliver an entire people. So I want to encourage us, many of us here are students, I want to encourage us, 
Pray. Be serious about your prayer by coming to God and saying, God, what are the governance structures that I can be a part of to let a light shine? Whether it be your residence, hawk, or whether it be the SRC, later on as you get kids, for those of us that do have kids, school governing bodies, etc. Perhaps we aren't all called to political office, and some of you may be. Get people praying for you. We need you there. We need the Daniels and the Josephs and the Esthers being able to stand up and say, wait a minute, King, something needs to change. We need those within our nation, but what we also need is right at the fabric at the bottom, we need people who are willing to shine a light to be a difference, to be a Daniel, to be that voice. We need to be there where it matters, both privately and publicly. We need to get involved where the decisions are being made. Those are the places that are called governments, where decisions are made, when governance happens. We can't be upset about the decision all the time if we're not willing to help make the decision. So I want to encourage us in that. First thing, pray. Second thing, which is perhaps a little bit too late, I think the lists are closed. You're not going to get your name on the list now for this year's election. But you can get your name on the list for your residence election or whatever it may be. Get involved in democratic processes. Become members, contributing members of society. And then thirdly, make your vote count. Make your vote count for Christ. What does that mean? Proverbs 29 verse 2, I love this passage. When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked are in power, they groan. I'd rather rejoice. Don't know about you, I'd rather rejoice. Certain stages of my life, I've experienced groaning a little bit because of wicked people in authority. There could be a variety of different factors that drive who you are thinking about voting for, have been thinking about voting for, voted for in the past. It could be my heritage, my ancestry, my history. Kind of, I come from this kind of flow and kind of we vote for this party because that's just what we do. It could be. It could be a financial or an economic issue. I, I want to vote for what's best for the economy, what's going to make, create the most jobs. It's not these things are not necessarily individually bad. It could be who I'm going to vote for because of fear. I'm, I'm afraid of what happens if I vote there, so I'm going to vote here, and I'm going to hope that my vote here does something about my fear about what could happen here. Fear-based vote. I want to hold before us, what if we approach it a little bit differently? Maybe before we, yeah, let me just put it down, otherwise I'm going to forget to come back to it. What if you and I came to the ballot box and we made a cross about, I want to vote for people, party, who share the things, the values that I think are important. What if we made a vote based on a value proposition, not just on an identity or a fear proposition? Another question that you can ask, and you guys are still young, so you phrase it probably this way, what is the country that you want to live in? For us as parents, it's become a little bit, what is the country that I want my kids to grow up in? Andy Stanley has this really, really powerful, but really simple thing that he calls the principle of the path. It simply says this, it says, your direction, not your intention, will determine your destination. Your direction, not your intention, will determine your destination. And that sounds really, really obvious when we say it that way. But sometimes in our own lives, we evaluate, if we're truly honest, we're heading in this direction, but our heart is to go in this direction, and we think that somehow supernaturally, miraculously, despite our heading in this direction, we're going to end up in this direction. Because my intention is here. 
Our intention does not determine our direction. My direction, will, my destination will get determined by the direction I'm going in. What is the direction we want this country to go in? And until we're willing to put our cross, in a sense, behind that direction, then we're just going to remain intentional. We want to be, let me put some things out there, a peace-loving, multiracial, engaged society that values the Word of God and freedom of religion and those things. Peaceful, there's a rule of law. Well, the question is, is it an intention to go there or is that the direction we're going in? And a phrase that I've liked to use a lot the last while when speaking to people, not in the election context, but I guess it applies here as well, is if nothing changes, nothing's going to change. If nothing changes, nothing's going to change. If, if we're totally happy with what we've got, and some of us may very well be fantastic, then we carry on going there. If we're not happy with where we're going, then we need to say, if, something, if we want something to change, something has to change. Okay, so let's get real a little bit about the vote bit. Can I step on some toes? Have you guys got your steel toe cap shoes on? A couple of hard truths for us to be aware of when we make our cross. It's a private ballot, am I right? Private. Nobody knows who you're voting for, except the people you may have told, am I right? Not quite. Jesus knows who you're voting for. Can I just put that out there? Number one. So let's go. Okay. Since we don't vote for individuals, personal character becomes irrelevant and organizational culture and party policy becomes crucial. What do I mean by that? I really like Alnay. Alnay is amazing. Alnay is a child of God, as is Junani. You too, Junani. The two of you are really amazing. Your face is up on the poster, or you're the person that phones me. It's not like some computer. I don't know if you guys get the computerized phone calls to vote for parties. I'm like, well, I'm not voting for you just because of that phone call. Thank you very much. Um, they're loving God. They really want to go in a, in a specific direction, but they're part of a party that consists of this whole block. I really want to vote for Elnay and for Junani. But the problem is that their party has certain policies that I fundamentally disagree with. Shaky, shaky, shaky. Their party is doing some stuff that I just, that's not what I think is the way we should go. I can't vote for Alnay because Alnay is bound to the party policy. Me voting for her, as much as I love her as an individual, I have to understand that I'm not voting in South Africa for an individual, I'm voting for a party. I can encourage Alnay, I can get behind Alnay, I can get, send Alnay text messages, I can pray for Alnay, I can say, Alnay, within your party, I'm trusting you to bring about reform. But until that reform happens, I cannot vote for your party. Does that make sense? Because of A, B, or C, whatever the relevant issue may be. So here's the hard bit that you probably didn't want to hear. You're going to have to do some homework. The party that you're voting for, are you completely comfortable with what they're voting for, what they stand for, with their policies? The party that's in the back of your mind, that's probably where, you know, when I see the posters, you know, there's the one poster I smile over and I frown at the rest. Um, am I comfortable with that party? I might very well be. Maybe a question for some of us. Do I even know what they stand for? Do I know? As part of your homework, I'd encourage you to do this. Go sit down. Turn off your cell phone. I know that's really hard. Put your Facebook notifications off. Put away Instagram. Sit down. Get a piece of paper and say, Holy Spirit, 
what are the most important issues to you in this nation? What are they? I'll tell you what for me is at the top of the list. At the top of the list for me is the 200,000 roughly of the most vulnerable members of society that we kill every year. Continually. No one's, not quite no one, but I'm not really seeing anybody put their hand up and say, this is a problem. Can we just stop killing vulnerable members of society? They have a right to life, just like everybody else. Killing children, doesn't matter what the problem is. It's not the solution to whatever the problem is. I don't see how killing a child solves the problem. That's just me, personally. But for me, that's quite a big issue. So much so that I'm willing to say, maybe another important issue for me is my dustbin must be collected on time. But hey, if my dustbin doesn't get collected on time for a couple of weeks, you know, a day or two, you know, if my dustbin's a month late, but we're not killing 200,000 vulnerable people every year, hey, I could live with that, but that's just me. I'd rather us not kill 200,000 people than have my dustbin picked up on time. Maybe that's just, that's just where I am, I know. Different, weird, peculiar people. We get back to that in a moment. You need to go and sit down and say, what are the key issues for me? For me, another key issue, I would love for my children to be able to go through their schooling career and to be able to have like they do at the moment, thank God for schools that just fear God more than they fear government, who still teaches the word, they've got Bible classes, they pr- I want my kids to be able to go to a school like that. You know, the sad thing is, if you go look at the stated policies of the majority of especially our larger parties, all of them say that can't happen anymore. They say us meeting here today can't happen anymore because this is a government building and we cannot use government buildings for religious exercise. These are matters which to me are important, the matters that are a lot more important than perhaps some of the things which are on the posters and the discussions. That You need to go and sit down and say, what to me are the important things and what are the parties that I kind of, my short list or whatever, what is it that they say around these things that are important to me? Okay, you still with me? Your toe is still okay? Next toe cruncher coming up. You will most likely vote according to who you identify most with. Where your strongest allegiance lies. So who am I thinking of possibly voting for right now? Well, that's possibly who you identify with most. Sadly, we're in a place, I think it's personal, I think it's sad. We're in a place, not just South Africa, but globally, where politics has become less about policy, where politics started. In other words, if you look at the election debate in South Africa, it's not... These are the five main issues in South Africa, and these are each party putting their plan on the table. How are we going to address these five issues? That's not the bulk of the rhetoric we're hearing, is it? The bulk of the rhetoric is more to do with who is going to do best for my people. And then we put in this driver and we separate and we're dividing. Those are my people, and I'm for those people, and kind of maybe I'm not for those people, and that's what it becomes what we call identity politics. It's politics of association. It's not politics of who's got the best plan on the table. It's politics of who do I identify with the most. So for you and me, that's an important question. Who do I identify with most? Who do I identify with most? So here's the point in this context. You guys agree I'm electing somebody to govern on my behalf, to speak in my stead. I can't be in parliament all the time. We can't all be in parliament. So I want somebody who's going to stand up in parliament 
and their duty is to speak on my behalf. That's why I'm electing them. If that's the case, did I put it up there? I think I did. Someone to speak in your stead? I believe before God, you and I will be responsible and accountable for the decisions the people made on our behalf. If I empower somebody to make a decision for me, I am responsible for that decision. Does that make sense? That makes it a little bit of a heavy one suddenly when it comes to election. Can I get heavy again with us? If we, if I, forget about you, if I, if I keep voting for a party that's totally comfortable killing 200,000 people every year and not even batting an eyelid about it, if that, I believe I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and Philip's going to say, can we talk about these 200,000 people every year? Can I see your hands quickly? You see those blood there? That's their blood on my hands. Or I'm more willing to stand up and say, I'm a peculiar person. I'm different. Human life matters to me. All people matter to me. And yes, there are significant issues that kind of all of us are going through. But hey, can we just stop killing people? Can we just agree around that at first? That's just for me. It's, for me, it's an absolute no-brainer. <laughs> How does killing people solve any problem? And so, you see, if I vote for a party, because I can't vote for an individual in South Africa, if I vote for a party and sort of the party changes tack, the party goes in a different direction, I don't believe, I, you know, that's one thing. But if I know that's what the party policy says, and I continue to encourage that, to endorse that, I'm going to be responsible for that. Does that make sense? Is that a little bit hard? I believe that's the truth. I believe as Christians, we have to own the fact that we are empowering people to act on our behalf and we are responsible for their decisions. We have to do our homework. We have to know what they're standing for. If your vote doesn't, kind of, your vote will kind of, it will reflect your allegiance. It will kind of, I'll vote with who I most identify with. But at the same time, if I'm not sure who I most identify with, my vote will reveal my allegiance. It will tell me who I identify with the most. Who do I want to vote for? Well, those are the people that I identify with. And the question that I want to hold before you then as a Christian is, is those the people you should be identifying with? It might very well be. Fantastic. Praise the Lord. But at least ask the question. How do I know if I want to identify with them? Well, let me get their manifesto as a start. What do they say is important to them? Is, is what's important to them, what they say is, do I agree with that? Or do I just happen to like their people, like their posters, like their color, like the, what they do, whatever? Am I in agreement? Am I willing to stand before God and say, God, I empowered those people to make those decisions because I supported that? I know it's heavy. But we have to be honest with ourselves when it comes to these matters. I think I might have put it up on the notes there as well, at the bottom there. You will have very few opportunities. You will have few opportunities to demonstrate your devotion to Christ as clearly as at an election. You will have very few opportunities to demonstrate your devotion to Christ as clearly as at an election. It's not standing up in front of a whole bunch of people saying something, but it's very privately, where no one else can see, saying, Jesus, 
Right now, I'm an ambassador for you. I'm standing here on your behalf. Uh, it's not me who live. I lay my life down. We sang it earlier. It's not my will. It's your will. Jesus, I've spent three weeks. I've prayed about this. I've spoken to my friends about it. I know that I know that this is what you want me to do. And I'm making a cross here because I know that this is what's going to be best for your kingdom going forward. And you know, that's between you and God. Nobody else will ever know about that. But you will be able to say, Jesus, right now, I'm taking a stand for what's right in your eyes. Matthew 6, a passage we know really well, but I want to read it again. Don't worry about these things. What are these things? Saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. I hope you and I are not unbelievers. I hope when it comes to an election, our thoughts aren't dominated by the things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. It makes us unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. At what stage does Matthew 6 verse 33 not apply anymore? At what stage do we say, no, Jesus, I know I must seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness, but you know, not when it comes to this, maybe an election. When it comes to an election, then that's important, but then I'm going to worry about what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to drink what I'm going to wear. I think I put it up there as well. When finance wins out over morality, I really believe everybody ends up poorer. When finance, when we make a decision based upon this is what's going to be best for my paycheck and in my saying that I'm not knocking the reality of poverty that we have in this nation and the serious need for job creation and poverty alleviation. Not knocking that all. I believe that's on God's agenda. I'm simply saying, if that's what's driving my decision, rather than Jesus, what is best for your kingdom, we're all going to end up poor. Are we willing to make value votes? And then the fourth part about our vote. Make your vote an act of faith, not an act of fear. Make it an act of faith, not an act of fear. Faith and fear both ask the same question. They both ask, what could happen? Fear asks, what could happen if it goes wrong? What could happen if it goes wrong? Faith asks, what could happen if it goes right? What could happen if it works out? What could happen if God breathes over this thing? The first part in the democratic process, I believe we should all engage with. We should pray. We should engage constructively where the decisions are being made and not just complain afterwards. We should make our vote count. We should vote for somebody who's going to represent me well. I want to vote for somebody who I have confidence for, that in every discussion, in everything that comes up, someone is going to stand up and is going to represent and say what I would have wanted to be said in that moment. That's hard to find. That's very hard to find. That's why you need to do homework. You need to be able to stand before God and say, that person standing up there is speaking on my behalf. Do I have confidence that what they say is going to represent what I want them to say? Because they're speaking on my behalf. I empower them to have a voice. The fourth part is we must respect the king. First Peter chapter 2. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Respect the king. Respect the outcome. Respect whatever happens. Respect it. It's a beautiful passage in Isaiah that says the government is upon God's shoulders. It is upon God's shoulders. 
Let's remember that. Respect whatever the outcome may be. First Samuel chapter 8, we read a passage here of um, the Samuel was leading as a prophet. There was a theocracy of sorts. Samuel as prophet was leading the people of Israel. Then they said, hey, hey, all the kings around us, all the nations around us have a king. We want a king too. We want to go across to monarchy. Samuel says, it's a bad choice. They said, we want a king. So Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. It's not about us taking it personally if we choose and elect. I hope I'm totally profoundly wrong, and I would love to be called a false prophet in this regard, but I'm not expecting us after this election to have a godly government suddenly. I'm not suddenly expecting us to have an election after this election. I'm very happy to be wrong, but I'm not expecting the president to stand up suddenly and say, from this day forth, we're going to do what's right in the eyes of God. I'm not really expecting that, and actually mean it. It's one thing if he says it in a church in election season because he wants everyone to vote for him. It's a different thing, the guy actually doing it. What should our response be? Well, don't take it personally. First Samuel 12, just a couple of chapters later. As for me, this is Samuel. You guys don't want me. You don't want God to lead you. You want a king. Hey, that's okay. I'm not going to sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. And I will continue to teach you what is good and right. I will continue to be a shining light in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. I will continue to be a shining light. I'm going to continue to pray. You guys chose in this context not to follow God, but hey, I'm going to continue to follow God. Does that make sense? Four key things. One last passage, just by way of encouragement as we go. Sometimes we wonder, sort of, is one voice? Does one voice make a difference? So let's say for argument's sake, we've got this proportional representation thing. Can I just, I wanted to say this earlier. Proportional representation that I mentioned about the campaign, about maybe you'd get an SMS about this, you'd maybe see it on a poster, which is at best a misrepresentation, at worst it's a lie. That simply says a vote for a smaller party is a spoiled vote. Has anybody heard that? If you know anything about electoral maths, that's just patently wrong. The whole point of Proportional representation is that a vote for a smaller party makes a difference. A vote for a smaller party is a vote for somebody who is going to bring whatever that party has on their cards to the table. Does that make sense? So if we can find, for argument's sake, let's say we find 45,000 people who agree together that this is the one thing, the mango thing, whatever it may be. For us, maybe a little bit more of a moral, more of a value type of thing that's for us really important. Seeking first the kingdom of God. We can have one person in parliament who can stand up and say, hey guys, do you know that's wrong? I know you're all going to laugh at me. I know you're going to think I'm an idiot, but I don't mind. I'm different. I'm a citizen of heaven. I know I'm a peculiar person. I just want to remind you this is wrong. You know that one voice is better than no voice. If it could be two voices, three voices, four voices, five voices, so much the better. But I believe it's much easier for God to breathe over one voice than over no voice. It's much easier for God to say, if someone were to stand up and say, guys, this decision we're making, it's bringing our country into judgment. Do we realize that? Yes, you're an idiot, sit down. Yes, I know I'm an idiot, but I'm an idiot for Christ. I'll sit down. But I just, can I just pick that? You know what might just happen? 
maybe the Holy Spirit just begins to move on some people's conscience. And some people are willing to stand up and say, hey, maybe the Almay within this party who is in favor of this ungodly thing behind closed doors is willing to say, hey, I actually agree with what he said. Can we talk about that? And maybe as Alnay says it, Tsunani says it as well. And maybe there's a whole bunch of people here that are willing to stand up. And maybe this party can go back because there was one guy who was willing to put up his hand and say, we agree with him. But that's far more likely to happen if there's at least one person putting up his hand from time to time and being an idiot for Christ. I want somebody... Hey, let's be honest. I can be honest with myself around this. If I was to be in parliament, I'd be the guy standing up being an idiot for Christ all the time. I really would. And I'd be comfortable with that. So I want somebody for me to represent me. And once again, we all have different things that are important to us and different people, different matters, different issues that are important to us. But if someone's really going to represent me well, they have to be willing to be a fool for Christ. Otherwise, they're really going to struggle to represent me. Because if I was there, that's what I would be doing. So I'm looking for someone who's going to do that on my behalf. But does one person really make a difference? Well, we've got three here. In Daniel chapter 3, three guys, Shad, Mish, and Abe, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow before the foreign king. They serve God and God alone. And the king says, well, throw them in the fire. As a matter of fact, make the fire hotter than it's ever been. And they throw the, the three young guys in there, and the people who are throwing them in the fire die, literally, because the fire is so hot. And these guys fall in the bottom of the fire. God comes and saves them. God pulls them out. Watch what happens. Because three people in the midst of a foreign government, in the midst of a people who have no revelation of God, are willing to stand up and be counted. Watch what the king says. Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. And I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not quite what we meant. But anyway, there is no other God who can rescue like this. There is no other God who can rescue like this. What happens? Three people are willing to stand up and make a difference, and suddenly room gets created for God to be glorified all across that nation. And with that, we're finished. <laughs> Who has class at 8 o'clock at night? Anyway, we are done. I want to encourage you that when it comes to you standing at the ballot box, stand there having done your homework. Stand there having prayed through it. Stand there having talked through it. Why not have some people that you trust, maybe a small group this week, sit around a table and say, hey guys, I want to vote for this party. What do you think? Not try and convince each other. But okay, do you realize that and that? Are you comfortable with Yes, I'm comfortable. Okay, great. Then you can vote for that party. Do you realize you're voting for this party means you support this and this? Well, what's the alternative? Let's talk through it. Okay, great. We're leaving here. We're all voting for a different party, and that's okay. We're all doing it from a place of conviction that we believe this is what God wants us to do. When you come to that ballot box, make it an act of faith. Be an ambassador for Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm standing up. I'm making a cross. I'm making my cross in the light of your cross. And I know, Jesus, that your cross will shine brightly 
over this cross because I'm willing to be an ambassador for you, representing you. Can we stand together this evening? I'd love us to pray. Does this encourage you a little bit tonight? Not? Okay. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that, Lord, before we even go into any election, we know you hold the government on your shoulder. Lord, we also know that when the righteous are in authority, we get to rejoice, and when the wicked rule, we groan. Jesus, we don't want to groan. And so we bring that upcoming election before you, and we, we pray for our nation. We pray that you would lead and guide the whole election by your hand, Lord Jesus. We pray for ourselves, Lord. We bring our heart before you. God, I pray that you would come and show, speak to every one of us clearly who it is you would have us vote for, Lord God. I pray for us, Lord God, that as we step out to make that vote, that it really would be a vote of faith, Lord. A vote that I believe I've heard the word of God. I know what he wants. I've wrestled with the scripture. I've prayed through this. And as I make this vote, I'm making a vote. And I'm confident that the people who will be standing up will be, re- will be representing me in an authentic way. God, I pray that you'd be able to make that vote, that you would lead us in what that means, what that looks like, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I even want to pray for us here tonight to realize that our identity is not in you, Lord. Lord, our identity is in some other thing, whatever it may be. Lord, in a sense, maybe physically we're baptized, not as a baby, doesn't count as baptism in any sense of the word, but baptized in you. We aren't baptized, Lord. And perhaps if we are, we realize that our identity hasn't shifted to be citizens of heaven, followers of you, a peculiar people. It's hard for us being a peculiar. We like being the same. We don't like being different. Jesus, if there are people here tonight struggling with that, I pray grace over them right now. I pray, Jesus, for a grace in their heart that you would come and do that miracle, Lord God. They, in a sense, would receive that citizenship of heaven, that they would know that they belong in heaven, not here. That their identity would shift, that they would know that they are part of the body of Christ, first and foremost. They're part of your own chosen, special people, your holy nation, the peculiar people. God, I pray for grace for every one of us to embrace that. In Jesus' name. Tonight, if that's you, maybe you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, or you have but you're wrestling just with this identity thing. I know I'm meant to follow Christ, but it's so hard for me to step away from the stuff that I have found my identity in up to now. My family, my background, my heritage, my language, whatever it may be. Tonight, I I want to make a decision to step away from that, to step into Christ. To become one with Him in that context. If that's you, in just a moment, I would love for you to step forward going to close the service. Martha and the team are going to continue to lead us in a time of song. And if you want to continue in a time of song, you're welcome to do that. If you need to go, you're more than welcome to go. But if you need prayer, step forward. We'd love to pray with you before you go. There's coffee and tea outside. You can hang around and have some coffee and tea. Maybe just one last thing. Yaku stood up after I was finished. I'll give the chat in a moment. Yaku stood up this morning and he really had a good point just as I was finished. He said, guys, it's important that if we believe God has spoken to us tonight, that we're deliberate about having some conversations on. 
that the easy thing would be to go and wrestle through this with me. But you know, one of our elders, he was speaking to one of our elders couples and the lady's been having conversations just in the circles that she's in out in the world with Christians, talking about the elections and then bringing some of these things on the table. Saying, but, but do you realize when you're voting for them, you're voting for, oh, I never knew. I didn't realize. Let's be deliberate about having conversations with people for their own discipleship. Perhaps in a sense, not in a getting into heaven sense, but in a, an accurate sense for their own salvation. Knowing that they will be standing in front of God to give an account for the decisions they make. Let's help and guide people, lead them. This message should be up on the internet by tomorrow morning. Spread the link if you think that's what's necessary to your friends. Talk to them. Let's not be shy about being ambassadors for Christ. Just before we go, Tiana, something you'd like to share? Lord, laying on my heart, um, reminding all of us of uh, Colossians 3, verse 23 and 4, which says, Whatever you do, work, work, work at it with all your heart as work done for the Lord and not for men. As, we know, as you know, you, you will in, receive your inheritance from the Lord. And I just feel that, yeah, that the Lord reminds all of us that whatever we do, work, do it as work done for the Lord. And that, I feel, includes voting. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I know we've been a little bit longer than normal, but I trust that it's okay for this time. If you need prayer, please come forward. We would love to pray with you. God bless you all. Have a fantastic week. And remember, no evening service next week. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.